I'm Seattle Times political reporter Jim Bruner. And I'm Seattle Times City Hall reporter Dan Beekman. Let's talk politics. Welcome to episode 18 of The Overcast, the Seattle Times Weekly Politics Podcast. Yes, we've made it to episode 18. That's 18 episodes and our first for 2017. This episode, we talked to Seattle Times real estate reporter Mike Rosenberg about the city's ongoing apartment building boom. It's going to boom even harder in 2017. And Mike tells us what that means for our rents. And what do people think about Governor Jainsley's budget proposal? Well, I sat down with Senate Republican leader Mark Schessler, and he gave us his view. You might not be surprised to learn he's not a big fan of the tax increases that Governor Jay Inslee is proposing. Also, we spoke with Daniel Zavala with the League of Education Voters, who ran down some of the considerations the legislature is going to be looking at as they try to solve this McCleary problem in the coming months. But first, this week's winners and losers in local politics. Jim, who's the winner? I'm going to go with longtime state senator Pam Roach, always controversial, and yet somehow always seems to get reelected and come out ahead. This year she went and ran for the Pierce County Council. She won, and and recently um, she not only won that seat, but she also basically got her choice to succeed her probably in the state Senate. The PCOs in her district chose Phil Fortunato, which if that's okayed by the county council, which seems likely, then he'll move into her Senate seat. So her her dominance of her, you know, her local political scene, despite... The Roach era continues. Right. (laughs) It continues on. And so, Dan, who's the uh, loser this week? Uh, We're going to call LSG Sky Chefs, the airline catering company that's a subsidiary of Lufthansa, the loser for this week. Sound effect courtesy of Archie McPhee's. (laughs) Uh, That's because the Seattle Office of Labor Standards announced this week that um, they have an order for the company to pay more than $335,000 in damages, back wages, interest, and penalties for failing to uh, increase the wages of the company's Seattle-based employees when Seattle's minimum wage law took effect on April 1st, 2015. Uh, The company has claimed that uh, they were exempt from that change and uh, are likely going to challenge, appeal this this order from the Labor Standards Office. Uh, But this all started when workers from the company uh, through uh, Local 8, the Unite Here Hospitality Workers Union, went to the city and said, hey, this company uh, that has us making this these airline meals didn't raise our wages like we're, they were supposed to. They were paying them peanuts. They were paying them peanuts and <laughs> serving up peanuts, maybe. Well, we see, we'll see what happens with that. Of course, the company gets to appeal, could get it turned around. But this is the first big case from the Labor Standards yeah, Office, this right? Is, yeah, this is the, the, the biggest case that they've, they've brought so far. We're here with Mike Rosenberg, Seattle Times real estate reporter, to talk about a big story you had recently, Mike, that's going to continue developing over the next year, and that's Seattle's huge, epic, I think you described it as, apartment building boom. Uh, This is, I think I saw you said something on Twitter like, you know, I decided to to look at 
this huge uh, apartment building boom that Seattle has been undergoing. And what I found out was that it hasn't barely started yet. It's going to explode much more in the next year. And and tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, the crazy part is, you know, Seattle leads the country in construction cranes right now. Everybody walks around. You can't go more than a few blocks without getting, you know, shut down from construction roadblocks. I think the sense in the community is that we're in the middle of this huge boom, and we are. So it kind of surprised me to see that we've actually only kind of gotten to the start of things. I mean, over the city's history, you get about 1,200 market rate units that open in a typical year. The last four years, we've had 5,000 open each year. So that's a boom. But then next year, we're expecting about 10,000. So it's twice as many as we've seen in any other year. Wow. And you're, and we're able to track this right because the projects take a long time to do. And so they're in the pipeline. And that that's where the data comes from, right? So they've, right. they've put money behind these, and they're definitely happening. Right. And most of these that are opening next year are already under construction and are real. Once you start... Uh, Forecasting out beyond that, it gets a little tricky because people could pull back. Right. Um, but for 2018, uh, as it stands right now, they're expecting a similar, you know, 11, 12,000 units. But that sort of depends on the on the market keeping up. And and what's that being driven by? You know, let's just remind people why we think this boom is booming. It's the demand. I mean, one of the guys I interviewed for the story, the developer, said, you know, the single biggest thing is the Amazon effects. I mean, if you look at, this is a company that has 10,000 job openings in the city. You're talking about 10,000 new apartments. I mean, it doesn't quite equal that, you know, easy math, but it's, you can see pretty easily how all those new employees, uh, not just from Amazon, but some of the, you know, some of the smaller companies that are expanding here uh, that are opening up shop. Facebook just opened up a huge office and is now about to double its presence. Google is about to build a huge new campus uh, in South Lake Union as well. So there are all of these job opportunities here that are bringing people here. And when you're new to the area, especially, it's easier to rent. And right. the, sort of the last factor is, is the housing market. It's so expensive to buy a house right now that so few people can, and they're not building any new single-family homes for the most part. So you have all these people who would have normally bought a house that are now sort of being pushed into the rental market. And that that actually just reminds me, you know, sometimes it, you hear people in Seattle talking about all these new condos, you know, there are new condos popping up all over the place. But when we're talking about this apartment building boom, what we're really talk, mostly talking about is is new rentals, right? Yeah, it's kind of a misconception. I mean, it's a shorthand for the boom is the condo boom, but there's really not that many condos. There's three major projects in the city right now. That's it. Hmm. There's about 40 uh, major uh, apartment towers just in downtown. There's about 650 overall in the pipeline. So really when you see these big buildings going up, no, nine times out of ten, it's apartments. And are these mostly what you would call upper-end you know, the term of art sometimes is luxury. What kind of, these are for, you know, the tech boom, these jobs pay really well. Are these high-end apartments for rich people? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, you're talking about apartments that open up uh, with sort of higher-end finishes, higher amenities. Because you have all these buildings open up, people are trying to sort of outdo each other and, and open up with these different... Um, well, like they, who has the best spa, the yeah. walk, your dog. Dog your spa. Dog, yeah, your dog is going to live lavishly at this apartment, that sort of thing. Um, 
So on average, it's about 40% more expensive at one of these new apartments compared to older units. Um, so that's sort of the, the big downside of all this. You, know, you think about all these new apartments coming online, but at the same time, you know, can you really afford them? Now, what's it going to do for the rents? For you know, We've seen big rent increases. It's caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. Is this going to you know, supply and demand? Is this going to help fix that, or what did you find? Yeah, I mean, in theory, that's that's what's happened in other cities. New York had the record number of apartments open in 2015, and then in 2016, they didn't have any rent growth at all. Some other cities, Houston, Boston, uh, have seen this happen. On the other end, places in California that have really stopped building have seen their rents skyrocket. Uh, so everyone seems to expect rents to slow next year, but the issue is, you know, we'll be talking about 5% rent growth instead of 10% that we've seen in years past, so it's still bad, but at least better. Could you, is, is it, would it be possible for Seattle to build its way into rents actually literally declining, actually declining rather than just slowing the increases? Or is it basically just you can build uh, enough that you're at least close to keep, keeping up with that, that demand from the Amazon jobs yeah. and, and that's about it? Or what do you think? Yeah, I mean, in theory, you could just keep piling on apartments until there were so many of them that landlords would have to um, reduce the rent. In, in reality, sort of like what we were talking about earlier, if landlords and developers and lenders especially start to notice, hey, rents aren't going up anymore, then they'll pull the plug on these projects, and that market equilibrium will sort of hit where you know, we get rents that rise two, three percent at the most, and then they'll say, okay, we can't do, we can't live with anything smaller than that, so we'll stop building apartments. And so, if I'm a, a renter in Seattle, and I'm uh, trying to sort of think about my own finances for the next year, or two, or three, realistically, what should I be expecting? I think you can expect a little bit more stability. You know, you, it's very unlikely you're going to be getting one of those notices in the mail that says, "Hey, your rent's going up by 20% unless you're living in a really outlying area like Federal Way or uh, somewhere in Pierce County where it hasn't really had the full brunt of this yet. Um, but you're not going to see, you know, rents going down. The best you're going to see is if you move in somewhere, you might get a deal like you get a free month's rent or no security deposit, something like that. And I guess everybody around the city can expect over the next year to see a lot of those sandwich boards out on the sidewalk saying brand new apartments open, come take a look and, and all of that. And to recheck their routes for walking or biking or driving anywhere in the city right, exactly. for construction as usual. Yeah. All right. Thanks for talking with us. Yeah. Thank you. I'm here with Senate Majority Leader Mark Schessler from Ritzville, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the governor's budget and what lies ahead for the legislature. Thanks for joining me. Great to be with you. Um, so the governor, Governor Inslee, rolled out his budget not too long ago. He said it was a bold plan that would fully fund, you know, K-12 public education for the first time in, in decades. And in order to pay for it, he, ha he proposed a lot of tax increases, as you know, uh, what was your reaction to his proposal? First, I had to stop laughing because the voters had just turned down a carbon tax with a lot of uh, reform, revenue sharing, turned it down. Right. The income tax on capital gains is still an income tax, which the voters turned down. And the B&O tax uh, is universally known as the most regressive 
tax you can have. So, uh, because it it's, a, it's a tax serious. on gr on gross receipts. On of gross businesses. receipts, it's really hard to take serious all of those, and knowing that they grow to eight billion dollars in the second biennium is a lot more than what it's advertised the first biennium. The other trouble that comes in, Jim, is that it still doesn't balance over four years. Four years from now, the budget would have $8 billion more tax revenue plus whatever growth, and it still can't balance. If you are going to raise taxes, you should at least be able to balance your budget. Do you, do you accept you know, the premise that there needs to be some new revenue to deal with the McCleary situation, the Supreme Court order, or are you not accepting that? Well, I think we can, we can consider resources in a lot of different ways. Um, we've looked at dedicating portions of new revenue. We've talked about a left one, TERS one merger. We've looked at, back before the Majority Coalition Caucus was formed, we looked at levy reform. Uh, then candidate for governor uh, Rob McKenna proposed it. Governor Inslee shot it down, but now Governor Inslee is talking about right. uh, levy reform as being a potential part of this. A property tax levy swap that, as it was proposed in 2012, as you mentioned, would, would have basically raised the property taxes in some districts and lowered them in more property-poor districts. Raising, lowering them is part of it, but... If you're a student uh, in Toppenish, you're going to get $300 from that large local levy, whereas it can run into thousands of dollars per student and others. That system simply can't be sustained as it is. So there's an equity issue that is Certainly, part of we can find equity issues uh, between two large school districts in adjacent counties, sometimes school districts that are neighboring simply can't compete. And of course there is there's there is natural economic growth. The state has had been able to take advantage of that, put billions more into the public school system. I guess to be more specific though, would would you and your caucus you think consider some new taxes possibly, including let, let's focus on the capital gains tax. This is one that would affect as proposed um, you know, not a lot of people in Washington state, wealthy people in Washington state. Is that worth a look? Uh, well, I would beg to differ with you on that. Um, it could be the S-Corp family business that has a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to sell and retire comfortably after decades of hard work. They're not the fat cats. That could be the neighborhood business that you and I both know somewhere. Okay. Uh, and it also has been one of the attractions of our state is lack of an income tax, lack of an income tax on capital gains, has certainly uh, been good for technology, innovation to locate here rather than places like Texas or Florida. So it sounds like you're not interested in it. I think that it's a, it's a poor choice. It's actually more volatile than our sales tax. Uh, Oregon is very heavily dependent on income tax, which includes income tax on capital gains. Their revenue has actually been more volatile during my career than Washington's. Right. In fact, the outgoing state treasurer, actually, Jim McIntyre, sort of panned some of these taxes that the governor proposed, um, including the uh, capital gains tax, which is volatile. Of course, he would like a personal income tax. I, I assume you're not on board with that. Well, we'll uh, <laughs> you know, while I enjoy visiting with the treasurer, uh, 
we do have differences of opinion on an income tax. Do you accept the premise, though, that 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 more money needs to be in the system than maybe our current tax code provides, you know, and that there may be so maybe there are problems mm-hmm. with the governor's proposals, but you would be open at least to looking at some new tax revenue. Well, the first priority is finding the resources to reduce the local levy dependency. Not pay raises, not class size, not other measures. The court's priority is to reduce that local dependency, get it down, and the levy cliff. Uh, we have a variety of ways to get there. And I think before we sit down and actually write a budget, it's premature. For the last five years, Jay Inslee always immediately screams for new taxes. And we tend to find our way pretty much without those new taxes. Right. Of course, you have a hard deadline. You know, this year, the the Supreme Court has said you need to, based on the legislature's own plan from some time ago, to deal with this. Do, Do you, are you committed to solving McCleary in the way that the Supreme Court wants, or I know some members of your caucus don't even accept that the Supreme Court has has given you a proper direction. Well, I think whether we really agree with the court or don't agree with the court, what really matters is we do have an over-dependence on levies. We have to get away from that over-dependence on levies, not just because the Supreme Court wants us to, because it's the right thing to do. Right, which is safer if people don't know, this is local levies are have basically supplanted over a period of time what the state was supposed to be doing in fully funding mm-hmm. public schools in the state, which the state constitution says is the paramount duty. And we've seen, uh, you know, some districts have spent the increased revenue the last four years admirably, others haven't. Mm-hmm. One side question on, on this McCleary situation, there's talk of and I think the Democrats rolled out a proposal yesterday that didn't include this, uh, that if the state does take more control over fully funding public education, that you would you would move to statewide collective bargaining. Is that a um, something that you are interested in and want to hold firm on or you want to negotiate? Well, I on think it? the legislature think? needs to control the purse strings rather than some districts giving the farm away, others holding the line. I think, if we're going to pay the bill, we should ultimately hold the purse strings on what goes. Well, it sounds like there's obviously a big difference. We know that this is a negotiation. The governor has 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 aimed high, I guess, yeah. in a number numbers way. way. Um, what you will put out your budget, give people the time frame. Well, by tradition, uh, we put our budget out uh, after the March revenue forecast. By tradition, the Senate leads with the budget this year, so. We will put our budget out at about the usual time after the March revenue forecast. Um, we'll be building that budget, uh, hopefully with a lot of cooperation. Uh, the past four years, we've had, or longer, we've had both Republican and Democrat budget leads in that room together working on ideas, working on alternatives to put a good budget together. Do you, do you foresee that level of cooperation, at least in the Senate, on that well, this year? Well, I, uh, I would hope that we can equal or exceed the uh, cooperation we had with Jim Hargrove. Uh, Jim was a model of cooperation, and I think our budgets were right. better for it. A longtime senator from uh, Hoquiam, right? Yes. And just retired. He's a, he was a, a well-respected guy on both sides of the aisle. Certainly, he brought a lot to the table on mental health, uh, fiscal responsibility, Uh, 
he also could see that uh, he lives in a county and represents counties that haven't uh, seen the recovery or level of recovery that other areas have and how their levies just don't do it out there. And yet his kids are supposed to compete for the same test scores, the same college uh, exams. So certainly uh, he was a champion. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious that not every area out there has seen the the Amazon-driven boom that we're seeing in this city with its, you know, benefits and pitfalls. Well, that's that's part of it. Uh, Not everyone has uh, and will never have property values no matter what we do. Uh, There's always going to be a tale of two cities in property values in cities that are side-by-side or counties that are side-by-side. Never have had that, never will. Last thing for now, I guess, are you confident that the legislature will get the job done this year? I mean, are you committed to doing that on McCleary? I wouldn't come here if I didn't think we would be successful. Why, why participate to lose? Right. Does that mean you're willing to compromise on some of the things that you... You know, we've always, yeah. we've always put together budgets that in the end were a compromise. The last four years, the final passage on budgets was overwhelming, bipartisan support. The transportation package, uh, two-thirds of the Senate voted for uh, a revenue package. Uh, Eighteen of my members voted for that package. Certainly, um, you educate the members, you put together real reforms rather than just business as usual, you can get a lot of things done. All right. Thanks for joining me. Appreciate it. Thank you. We're here with Daniel Zavala, Director of Policy and Government Relations with the League of Education Voters. And we're going to talk about what what a new poll says is the top issue, should be the top issue for legislators in this coming legislative session. And I think they already know it. It's it's education and school funding. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's remind people where we are with education funding. You know, we've had this long-running issue in this state at least since the McCleary decision in 2012, where the state Supreme Court said, hey, you're not doing your job amply funding public schools as called out in the state constitution. But there's been some progress made since since then. Where, where would you place us at this moment in time? And, and then what remains to be done in this legislative session? So, you know, back in the, when the McCleary decision came out, there were a number of items that needed to be addressed that had been called out from the Supreme Court decision. Where we stand now is, you know, if we were to look at just those particular, you know, items that have have been outlined from the court, looking at educator compensation and also uh, full day pre-K. Those are the the remaining items, but those are big, big ticket items, right? Correct. So billions more into schools. Do you have sort of a top line number that that you would say um, this is going to cost so I think that's the, the issue up for debate right now, right? And I think while outlining those two, there's also a greater discussion around what are the other things in education we should be looking at that are integrated within those two components and within the broader education system in Washington. And so when we're talking about you know, the discussion of cost, right, the, there's the range because it comes down to is how are we approaching this? You know, what should be the actual way that we're looking at teacher compensation, teacher salaries? 
And then also just what are the other items that we should be looking at within our broader education system here in Washington? And so, you know, naturally, you know, the more that you're looking at, the more that you're looking at, you know, um, increasing in terms of services, the additional costs that may be required, but also the... Right. But does the league have a number or are you sort of agnostic on that and you want to just have an outcome that is, is a fully amply funded public school system? So I think that's everyone's ultimate outcome, right, is looking at a fully funded, you know, education system. I think that's what the court has already outlined. In terms of, you know, our take on it is we don't have a particular number. I wouldn't say we're agnostic, right? I think it just comes down to is what are the moving parts that are on the table right now and as that's determined by both the Democrats and the Republicans. So can you give some examples of when you're talking about that range of what it means to fully pay for teacher salaries or what a role of the teacher entails and, and some of those other related programs or services um, that are related to uh, preschool that make up that range. What are, what are some examples of those different parts or pieces? So a, a big example of one might be around student supports, right? So here in Washington, we have the, the LAP program, Learning Assistance Program. And so within that, if you're looking at the, the particular program components, whether you're expanding it and providing additional funding to it, whether you're looking at the eligibility and expanding that, that would contribute to what that range may look like. And what, is that, what is that program, though? What does that mean? That's a program that's particularly targeted based on academic need um, and student need as well for students from low income. So is this is uh, extra tutoring, or I know the governor had put in some money in his budget for even, I think, counseling and like school nurses and support programs like that. Is that what we're talking about? So there's additional funds that have been outlined in the governor's budget around kind of school counselors and, and nurses. Um, the 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 LAP program actually looks at, and right now it's particularly focused around K four literacy. Um, but that looks at you know a range of options that can be provided in terms of allowable uses for student services. So the governor put out a pretty ambitious plan that would raise taxes by four point four billion dollars. It's more than eight billion once it's fully implemented, and this would fully fund basic education for the first time. He says, and you know he calls it bold action. So of course immediately getting panned by Republicans. What did you make of what the governor put out, and is that something the league supports? Or are you, you know, waiting for more information? Or where, where, do, where do you think the governor is? Or how, how did he do on that? So in terms of the budget, we think it's a great conversation starter because it at least outlines a lot of the components that are going to be on the table for this upcoming session in terms of debate and discussion. As an organization, we're still waiting to see what comes from you know, the Republicans in terms of the first draft of the budget, as well as the Democratic response from there. Of course, we've seen. So, so, so you you you're reluctant to take it to take a, a stance then on the specific tax proposals he's rolled out. Yeah, so we haven't taken a particular stance on okay. any individual. Do you think or the that, ones of the package? Does, does there need to be new revenue though, realistically, to accomplish all these goals? I think that's the big debate, right? Is whether it's new revenue, whether it's looking at the existing revenue streams and figuring out how okay. you can reallocate within the existing sources. So. So what is the League of Education voters exactly demanding that this legislature do? It sounds like you don't want to immediately get into the debate of whether right. or not to raise taxes. What are you, what are you, what are you telling uh, lawmakers when you, when you talk with them? So one thing that I think there's broad consensus around from both Republicans and Democrats and pretty much everyone in Olympia is that something has to be done in education this year 
in order to fulfill the McCleary mandate. So I think that's broad consensus across the board, and we're certainly you know on 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 the same page with that. In terms of you know our particular role, it's really around looking at as we're thinking about how education is funded, what are the different areas within it that need to be addressed? So one of those that I've already talked about is the educator compensation, right? Recognizing that our great teachers across the state need to be compensated, ad not, not only adequately, but sufficiently, you know. Um, and then on top of that, looking at student support. So as I mentioned before with the LAP program, but also looking at what are the other areas where we can be providing and tailoring services based on student need. You know, one thing I noticed in, we have a, a story up about um, uh, the Democrats on the task, state task force on school funding uh, releasing a proposal uh, for, for funding. And one thing that it would apparently do is raise increased teacher average pay to nearly $71,000 across the state. Um, is that a level of teacher compensation that uh, sounds right to you? Or what do you think? So I can't, and I, I think based on those numbers, I can't remember if that was the average or if that was the starting salary. Do you know? Looks like average to me. Now, this is news just happening as we in the last couple of <laughs> as uh, we minutes, record this, so, right? Yeah. So we're 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 on the cutting edge here, but uh, average, I think. So I, I think one thing is certain, and I think this is something that can also be broadly agreed upon, is that, that teachers need to make more money. That's how we're going to attract them to the refreshment. That's how we're going to keep you know, our quality teachers in the classroom. And so we certainly agree that we need to focus on that compensation piece um, and recognize as well. And one of the things that the governor proposed right, is, is having kind of a, a uniform state salary schedule that actually allows for um, teachers across the board, you know, regardless of, of their particular region, whether in a rural district, whether they're in an urban district, to be making additional you know, money. And he actually has it uniform and set consistent across right. the board. And do you think he has that set at the right level? Uh, you know, what is a, fa a fair wage uh, salary for, for a teacher in, in Seattle, the most expensive place in yeah. the state? And then what do you think would be fair in, in a different part of the state? Zilla. Do you have, yeah. do you have numbers or... or are you not thinking in those terms? No, I think that's a fair question, and that's not something that we've looked at at that granular of a level in terms of determining either by district what's you know the fair you know wage for for teachers, but certainly something that we're open to hearing and definitely want to be a part of the discussion. So it sounds like you, you, you the League of Education Voters is um, looking at at outcomes too, and, and not just at sort of levels of funding, but at what do we want our school system to look like. Right. That's exactly right. And that actually brings me to kind of one of the other major areas of, you know, not in, you know, in addition to kind of how much money goes into this, but also kind of what's our role and what would we like to talk about is the exactly what you're talking about in terms of the outcomes portion. Right. So what data and transparency within our education system do we need in terms of the funding streams and how the, those funds that are going to districts and schools are actually generating student outcomes? So something that would be more and I've looked at your legislative agenda, and you do say that in here, accountability, something that would provide transparency for families on school budget and student outcomes. So is that something that's, that's pretty you know, lacking or it just varies a lot district by district now in terms of what you can sort of see about how your, your, you know, your district's spending money and how it's affecting your child's education? I think it's definitely the latter portion and that it varies from district to district. And so what we would like to see is some uniform state practices that allow 
you know, not only the public, but districts to actually, you know, use that information to have, you know, some best practice sharing across district lines in terms of, you know, where are programs successful, where are outcomes being generated best, and, you know, how can we, you know, use what's happening in one portion of the state and the other as well. Well, I know, I know you want to get into specifically into like advocating for a particular tax, but I do want to ask you one more question on, on the issue of clearly it needs, it's, it's on the table, right? And, and there does seem to be a gut reaction with some voters and maybe some of them will listen to this. Um, you know, why should I pay more for this? Or, you know, I don't have kids in school or something. Um, what's the case that you make that there's sort of a broad public benefit to pouring a bunch more money, you know, into the system? What kind of outcomes would we, would we see in this state? I think one is you see the emphasis already, right, in terms of, of the poll that you just mentioned, in terms of the, the commitment that the state already has in education, is that education really is the top issue for a number of reasons. One, just for the, the general benefit of an educated society, but perhaps more, you know, in an explicit way, right, is that the jobs that we have that need to be filled require an educated, you know, population. Um, and so, you know, that's one component of why we need to be doing this. And also because the opportunities that would be afforded to students afterwards in, in kind of the post-secondary realm, whether those, you know, be certificate tracks, whether they be college, whether they be some sort of career track, all require, an, you know, an additional level of, of what we're currently providing right now. Right. Jobs the future. And I guess putting on my cynics hat for a second here, uh, you know, we can see that voters really uh, care about the legislature dealing with education this session, um, but, you know, they they haven't gotten there over the last few years. What if I said, you know, they're probably right. not going to get there again. Well, what, they had what, a meeting today where Republicans and Democrats, and again, go to our website, cltimes.com, you see an account of it. You know, it sort of degenerates sometime into to finger pointing. Yeah. So if I say, you know, I just don't have any faith that they're gonna that they're yeah. gonna do what what you're saying, folks want them to do, and what you want them to do. What's your response? Convince us they can they do it. <laughs> so I'm optimistic that, that, that there's certainly opportunity to do that. Uh, I think one kind of big, uh, I suppose, you know, catalyst in that is is the the mandate that comes from the McCleary decision, right? That that ha this has to be done this legislative session right. in order to fulfill the timeline that has been set out there for. And I guess we haven't really talked about it in detail, but the. The state's under a hundred thousand dollar a day fine that's just sort of accruing in, in an account somewhere. It's not, you know, it hasn't really been spent. There, you know, the state doesn't have to send a, a check to the state supreme court justices yet. But that's up over fifty million dollars now. <laughs> and if they don't meet this deadline this session, this, the court could come back and take more drastic measures. And I mean, is that what you want to avoid? Do you, do you think that we're at risk of that? So, I, I mean, I think, you know, I, I can't speculate as to kind of what the court's going to do or what the repercussions are for inaction. Um, but I think that it's certainly a, a driving force in terms of creating, you know, the conversation that this needs to right. this needs to happen this year. Well, thanks. Thanks for joining us. We're going to continue to watch this. Um, you can look for our reports on CLTimes.com. I think I noticed the League of Education Voters website also has a lot of really good resources. If people want to look about at that. It's, you know, it's nonpartisan. It lays out a lot of the facts and people can kind of look at the situation for themselves. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it for having me.
That's a wrap for episode 18 of The Overcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our guests this week, Mike Rosenberg, Senate Majority Leader Mark Schessler, and Daniel Zavala with the League of Education Voters. Send us your ideas for next week's episode and any other kind of feedback you want on Twitter at dbeekman at jim underscore bruner. Email us at cltimesovercast at gmail.com. Leave us a voicemail at 206-464-8778. Make sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Stitcher. And until next week, have a cloudy day.